I'm Orion Cooling. And I'm Zach Meyer. And this is Shadow Carriers. Shadow Carriers is a curated collection of disturbia assembled by two lifelong storytellers, sonically mixed to bring you into the darkness and out again. We invite you to sit with us in the shaft of moonlight and, if you're brave enough, to step into the shadow with us. You stare over the calm waters of the lake from the safety of the shoreline. You thought that by being here, something would happen. Closure, maybe? You haven't been back here since that day when you were a kid. You'd been home sick with the flu for two weeks, and that was your first day back to school. But something else was planned. Classes were paused for several days, and you couldn't be more excited to get back with your friends for whatever was going on. You didn't care what it was as long as it wasn't school. You asked your older brother what they were doing instead, but he said he didn't want to spoil it for you. He said you'd see when you got there. You snap back to the present and glare as a boat speeds through the serene image, towing a loud and frantic kid, squealing his delight from an inner tube. That indistinguishable timbre of a child's scream vibrates through your bones and weakens your knees. Collapsing to the ground of the lakefront, you fight to steady yourself from dizziness, calming breaths, grounding measures. Your pulse starts to slow again, but the prickles that run through your limbs show how close you were to passing out. You weren't ready for that. Maybe you're not ready for this at all. Your stomach pleads for you to leave, but something in you needs to confront this. From the relative stability of the ground, you stare at the water again this time with more resolve and purpose. You remember now who you're dealing with. Calming breaths. You close your eyes, and you go back. Decades ago, barely pushing 14, you and your classmates were getting bussed in here with kids from other schools. Looked a lot different back then. For one thing, the lake didn't exist yet. They handed you a shovel and told you to start at it. Everyone else had had a couple of days of experience already, so they splintered off to their work areas. No one would tell you what was going on. Clearly, your brother had convinced even your friends to be in on his little game. He puts his arm around your shoulder a little too roughly and leads you up to his spot, where his friends are already positioned a little too closely together, as if they're hiding something behind their backs behind their hole. You're still a little weak from the flu as you walk up the hill to your brother's friends, You start sweating, and you feel slightly dizzy, but you make it to the top. The friends giggle as they look to your brother for their cue. He orders them to move to reveal an old, mossy gravestone that has your name newly scratched in over the original. The shock of someone desecrating a grave like that shocks you into confusion. You look to your brother for answers when you feel the hard jolt between your shoulder blades. You fall six feet down into the hole and land hard, choking on dust and dirt. You cough as you try to wipe your eyes clean. When you finally clear your vision, you realize you're lying on top of a decomposed corpse. Its eye sockets stare their hollow emptiness into you. Its mandible disconnects from the skull with a pinching crack. You inhale to scream but choke on the rotten dust your landing kicked up. You struggle to breathe while the sight of bones, hair, and tattered fabric glares at you, disturbed by your intrusion. 
tears stream down your face as you collapse into a ball while those eye sockets penetrate your memory from the other side of the hole. You close your eyes to shut them out and feel arms wrap around you trying to grip you tightly. You fight them off until your brother's voice gets through to you. He's in the hole with you trying to shake you out of it. Both of you struggle but finally get out of the hole where you continue to cough and wheeze on the ground. There's a crowd surrounding the scene now as your teacher runs in to take you away from prying eyes. That was the only day you went with your classmates to help disinter the cemetery. You received special permission to skip the rest of the week so you could recover from your new cough. It never really went away. The festering dust rushing into your already weak lungs has seemed to follow you ever since. The remembrance of those events make you quickly pat your pocket to ensure you have your rescue inhaler. It's there. Calming breaths. The lake is calm again. Barely any ripples remain from that earlier boat. But you know deep down that not every grave from that cemetery was moved before the flooding of the valley. You know this land was taken for pennies on the dollar or straight up stolen for its acquisition. You know the unsettling death toll that seems to climb every year. You know the legends of these waters. And though they may seem calm at the moment, you rhetorically ask yourself, can this place ever be at peace? Truth is at its most peril when a lie no longer remembers what it's hiding. 50 miles outside of Atlanta lies a facade. Lake Lanier draws over 12 million visitors a year, but it's not a natural lake. In fact, northern Georgia has over 40 lakes, but all of them were man-made. Billions of gallons of water filled Lake Lanier in 1956 by the Army Corps of Engineers to provide hydroelectricity to the region. 65 years later, it has morphed into a huge summer destination for boating and recreation. It flanks the east side of Forsyth County, one of the wealthiest counties in the whole country. It also records a disconcerting number of deaths every year. Once you start looking to the lake's past to understand its present, you begin to understand why so many people believe Lake Lanier to be cursed. Before the lake was created, before America was even a country, the Cherokee tribe flourished in the lands of the southeast, expanding over eight modern U.S. state lines. In the 1820s and 30s, the state of Georgia conducted a relentless campaign to remove the Cherokees from the state. Despite the Cherokees establishing a constitutional government and declaring to the American public that they were a sovereign nation that could not be removed without their consent, Georgia annexed their lands, abolished their government, courts, laws, and established a process for seizing and distributing Cherokee land to the state's white citizens. The legal battle went all the way to the Supreme Court multiple times and even ended with a victory for the Cherokee tribe that declared that the Cherokee nation remained a separate sovereign nation with a legitimate title to its national territory. But the state of Georgia and President Andrew Jackson ignored the Supreme Court's decree. They continued to press for the removal of the Cherokees by any means necessary. Despite the edict from the highest court, the U.S. Army entered Cherokee Nation in 1838 to forcibly gather and march them to territories in present-day Oklahoma. This would later become known as the Trail of Tears. 
During this event, tens of thousands of indigenous people from over five tribes were stripped from their lands. Thousands upon thousands would die in this forced displacement. This horrifying event led by the U.S. government and inspired by white supremacy tainted the soil stolen from these tribes. Injustice, loss, and racism salted the earth. And for a section of northern Georgia, it seems like that land hasn't been at peace since. We move forward a couple generations in Forsyth County to the predominantly black communities of Oscarville and Big Creek. In the early 1900s, they were thriving with over 1,100 people in population. In 1912, two separate alleged attacks on white women resulted in black men being accused as suspects. With all white juries in the Jim Crow South, the trials never had a chance at balanced rhetoric or fair examination for these men. The speed at which they were tried and sentenced to death is quite disturbing. One man, Rob Edwards, didn't even get to see his trial before a white mob pulled him from his jail cell and lynched him. These accusations and pseudo-trials of 1912 ignited yet another ethnic cleansing in this area, this time of its black communities. Night Riders of the KKK began a campaign that terrorized and drove out black families. Within four months, an estimated 98% of the black population was driven from Forsyth County. Some were forced under gunpoint to sell their property at massively undervalued amounts. Some left their homes due to the threat of violence, and some were killed without being given a choice. An infuriating outcome in the aftermath of black families abandoning their properties because of racist barbarism was that because they had stopped paying taxes on the buildings and lands they were driven from, many black-owned properties ended up in the hands of the remaining white population without a sale or even a legal transfer of title. These were communities of schools, churches, businesses, cemeteries, generational homes, and lands that were ripped away by domestic terrorism. Once again, this land was murdered for and stolen away by armed and violent white supremacy. The white families who moved in and capitalized on this travesty tried to continue as if nothing had happened. They leaned into this lie so that they could ignore the fact that the gravestones of someone else's family adorned their backyards. They tried to overlook their sins of erasing the lives and prosperity of black communities so that they could try their own hands at prospering on this land. But that wouldn't be for long. In the 1950s, Georgia Power and the Army Corps of Engineers wanted to create a lake to provide hydroelectricity to Atlanta. But they needed tens of thousands of acres to be cleared in order to do so. So they came to Eastern Forsyth to acquire the land. In addition to the region being geographically ideal for the needs of creating a lake, the demographic of the area was mostly working class without much clout or financial power that could fight against the monolithic presence of Atlanta 50 miles down the road. The term for this is called development-induced displacement. On its own, this sounds like a bland vocabulary word you would get from your 7th grade social studies book, but it was a death knell for the residents of Eastern Forsyth in the 1950s. Whether they were the rightful owners of the land or beneficiaries from its previous thefts and appropriations, the residents of Eastern Forsyth could not combat the ceaseless onslaught 
by the rich and powerful who desired the acquisition of their property. The government was going to get it one way or another. The project and the contracts were too big to let a reluctant farmer here or there halt any headway. Those in power called this progress in order to hide the true circumstances that this was yet another forced displacement. The government offered some money to the residents for the exchange. At first, they assured landowners they were being paid for the true value of the properties. But the residents found it hard to price memories, hard work, and means of generating income. But in the end, they realized they didn't have a choice. It wasn't going to be the U.S. Army invading like they did to the Cherokees in 1838 or the KKK terrorizing the black communities of Big Creek and Oscarville in 1912. It was going to be the inevitable and unstoppable torrent of billions of gallons of water erasing the valley from existence. Eventually, 700 families sold over 56,000 acres to the government, a decision many would come to regret as they quickly realized it wasn't enough to live off of without any income being produced by their farms. To prepare, the Army Corps of Engineers tried to demolish or move anything they considered dangerous or that could float. Bridges or water intakes were relocated. But the communities had cemeteries that needed to be moved as well. While the engineers identified and moved marked graves, the technology for identifying and verifying unmarked burial sites just wasn't available in the 1950s. Also, their main source of labor for the disinterment and relocation of the bodies were literally busloads of schoolboys with shovels. With limited technology and school children leading the efforts, how thorough do you think the gravesite relocation campaign could have been? The question of graves being inadvertently left behind isn't a matter of if, it's a question of how many. Lands, memories, homes, businesses, final resting places, nature, history, all those were once again being stripped away from its residents. In 1956, locals jammed roads and bridges to watch as the past vanished before their eyes. Whatever the engineers and locals had abandoned was now being covered by the rising waters. The lake was filled with over 625 billion gallons of water. In 1959, when the water level finally peaked, it gradually became a popular vacation and boating spot that sees millions of visitors every year. But Lake Lanier was never meant to be used for recreation. Remember, entire towns were swallowed up by the water. Despite the Army Corps of Engineers' efforts of removing structures that could uproot or float, many of the structures remained under the water, a haunting image of a past life that was paved over by forced progress. As journalist Christian Boone described it, at its deepest depths, exceeding 100 feet, a backwoods Atlantis survives. Chicken coops, barbed wire fences, bleachers, homes, and all manners of previous communities lay motionless, frozen in time, cocooned by billions of gallons of water. And then there are the trees. By not removing them entirely before flooding the valley, Many of them were only shortened to the level of the water. Literal forests stretch up from the lake bed only to remain hidden, sometimes inches below the surface. This has caused countless boating accidents as it seems like an unseen force comes up from the depths and grabs the hull of your boat. It has also made search and rescue diving incredibly dangerous. 
Since its creation, Lake Lanier has claimed hundreds of lives from drownings and boating accidents. With the treacherous environment that lays below the water, many victims go without rescue, their bodies getting lost in the maze of forgotten towns or getting swallowed up by the branches of the underwater trees. Through its past, the area has seen ruthless and devastating displacements of its residents. Dreams demolished, investments stolen, peace blighted, and lives taken. And now, all that remains is a repository of water pretending to be a lake trying to cover up the past. There's a theory in the paranormal community that spirits latch onto locations that were of great significance during their lives, even if that location wasn't where the person passed away. It could be an ongoing sense of devotion that redirects the spirit of a retired lighthouse keeper to return to his former place of duty. Or it could be the residual strife and terrible pain suffered by those who were torn from their homes in northern Georgia that keeps their spirits wandering there eternally, seeking retribution. But if that's the case, then the spirits roam a different landscape than their corporeal forms did. Only yards below the dangling feet of swimmers and the floating hulls of boats, lost and pained souls who endlessly search for their stolen homes do so through the deep, cold, and murky waters of Lake Lanier. An army of the aggrieved seek their possessions that they were murdered for through an underworld of sunken towns and forests. Some find their burial sites that were carelessly left behind when the flood waters swallowed the valley. It's no wonder stories of odd, strange, and terrifying experiences continue to slither through and emerge from these waters. An unmanned raft is often seen floating across the surface, only to disappear into a mist. Several people have had run-ins with a catfish that they say was as big as a Volkswagen. There have been countless near-drowning experiences where the person describes what feels like arms trying to pull them underneath the surface as they struggled for air. Probably the most notorious story is the Lady of the Lake. She wanders the bridge outside of Gainesville on Dawsonville Highway. She appears in a blue dress. She is seen surveying over the edge of the bridge, peering over the side into the water. As she floats along, witnesses have consistently noted that her apparition seems to be missing both her hands. Despite this, upon investigation of the guardrails where she appeared, wet handprints are left where she was leaning. She is widely believed to be the spirit of Delia May Parker Young. In 1958, Delia and her friend Susie Roberts headed out for a night on the town. Delia borrowed a blue dress for the occasion. Their destination was the Three Gables Roadhouse in Dawsonville. Their last known location was a gas station down the road from Three Gables, where they sped away without paying for the gas. A couple miles away, tire skids were seen along the road close to the bridge on Dawsonville Highway. It seems like their car lost control and plunged into the lake. The lake was searched extensively, but nothing was found until 18 months later, when a body was discovered by a man fishing underneath the bridge. The body was missing both hands. 
A positive identification couldn't be made, so the body was laid to rest in an unmarked grave in Alta Vista Cemetery. Over the years, Susie Roberts' family were left without answers. Had she driven away with Delia? Had she had been injured and lost her memory, and was living in another part of the country? Her husband Frank died in 1972, never knowing where she was. But in November 1990, a construction crew made an amazing discovery while doing maintenance for the bridge. From 110 feet down into the murky water, the crew pulled out a 1950s Ford sedan with the body of a woman still inside. A watch found on the body was identified as Susie's. As a result, it was determined that the body in the unmarked grave must belong to Delia. The anonymous headstone that had looked over Delia's remains for over 30 years was finally etched with her name, finalizing her place of rest. But the Lady of the Lake is still seen floating over that bridge on Dawsonville Highway. Her borrowed blue dress fluttering in the wind as she leans over to peer over the guardrails. Her remains, finally getting their proper remembrance, hasn't seemed to put her spirit at peace. So why does she continue to wander there? Maybe she's drawn to her place of passing, forever contemplating the location where her hands were removed and her life was cut so short. Maybe she has been yearning for so long to be reconnected with her old friend Susie, who laid so far and so deep underwater that she is now latched to that spot, endlessly waiting for her companion to resurface but not knowing she missed her in the daylight. Or maybe it's something else entirely. Maybe she's aware of what else lies beneath the ripples of Lanier. The discarded buildings, the mythical forests, the stolen and blood-soaked lands, the forgotten remains of others who were left behind that now lay entombed under the impossible weight of the water because despite the youth of this lake's existence, its memory runs deep. We are reminded every year as more and more deaths occur here that something continues to toil beneath its surface. Its tranquility has been forfeited. So take heed the next time you jump into the waters of Lake Lanier. Something's lurking down there. As your feet dangle down from the surface, a lost world stretches upwards through the murkiness aching to be remembered. It wants you to know it's still there. It wants to tell you something. Are you ready to listen to it? Because what just brushed against your leg? This episode was written, directed, performed, and sound designed by Zach Meyer and Orion Cooling. Soundscaping and engineering by Zach Meyer. Production manager is Angela Davis Cooling. Creative director Sarah Perry. Guest vocals by the Meyer nephews. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to support our work, become a patron of the podcast and gain access to exclusive content. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash shadowcarriers. If you'd like to buy our storytellers a drink, you can donate to our Venmo at shadowcarriers. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram and stay connected to the up-to-date events and upcoming episodes. And most importantly, if you've enjoyed your time with us today, please consider subscribing to Shadow Carriers and leaving a review on your podcast provider. 
As a small podcast, your reviews and subscriptions really help us grow our listener base and influence the mysterious and chaotic spirits known as algorithms. We've served you these stories for a peek to the other side, but as you leave us, we wish you fair winds winds and following skies. Hey, Henry and Leo, want to take a swim out on the cursed waters of Lake Lanier? Oh, no!